For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear how changing immigration policy and COVID-19 are impacting the 18-year mission of the Tucson Samaritans. Find out how border wall construction threatens the future of the endangered Sonoida mud turtle. And enjoy a radio drama presented by the Rogue Theater based on a Virginia Woolf short story called The Mark on the Wall. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On July 1, 2002, Tucson Samaritans, a humanitarian aid group, went on their first trip to the border. Their goal, to save as many lives as possible, hasn't changed in the 18 years since, but the borderlands have. Following 9-11, the border gradually became a militarized zone. Policies of deterrence forced migrants to attempt crossing through ever-deadlier parts of the desert. And this year, the COVID-19 pandemic, followed by the Trump administration's ban on legal migration, brought new challenges. Elisa Ivanitskaya spoke with two members of Tucson Samaritans about their mission and the current state of the U.S.-Mexico border. We left Tucson at 7 a.m. and headed west along Ruby Road. It is beautiful out there. There were clouds rolling in to provide a shade. There was some rain, which is just an incredible blessing upon the desert. Last weekend, Lisette de Mars was one of around 40 Tucson Samaritans who participated in Flood the Desert, the annual celebration commemorating the group's first trip to the desert 18 years ago. The goal was to get as many volunteers in the desert as possible to provide humanitarian aid to migrants. This year, there was no potluck or common gathering, and new safety protocols were in place. We were practicing social distancing, mask wearing, isolation in vehicles unless you lived with that person. We spent most of our day picking up trash along the road. The Samaritans use a GPS system to mark the areas where we have found that there's high traffic of travelers. So we stopped at a few of those cross trails to check in and see if we found any recent evidence of travelers. At a couple of those stops, we actually left some water. Maybe people had been through there somewhat recently. Leaving water on trails is one of the most effective measures to save lives, says John Five. He's a retired Presbyterian pastor and volunteer with both Tucson Samaritans and no more deaths. The primary cause of death out there in the desert is, of course, dehydration and heat stroke. So if that's the primary cause of death, we needed to put water out in the desert. And beyond that, to search for migrants who are in uh, serious distress or wounded out there and provide emergency medical care for them as well. During the 18 years of Samaritan's mission, border enforcement and migration have both changed dramatically, Five says. When we began in 2002, the major migration was people crossing because of the devastating effects of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, The World Bank estimated that the North American Free Trade Agreement had, had forced somewhere over 2 million small farmers 
in Mexico to have to leave the land because they could no longer uh, support their families as they had for generations before that on that land. And then that changed as uh, more and more people were forced to flee from the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, uh, El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras because of cartel and gang violence. And they were primarily people seeking asylum. But at the same time, the strict border policies also contributed to migration, according to Five. People who had fled Mexico, mainly men seeking work, because of the border enforcement and walls that were going up and the militarization of the border by Border Patrol, instead of sending money back to their families in Mexico, they were saving their money and paying for their wives and their children to join them here in the United States because it was not possible for them to do what they had done for generations and that is work for a a year or two and go back to their families, and then when they had to return and work, they would do so. In the 2019 report, the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner said that since the year 2000, 3,081 human remains have been recovered. One-third of them are still unidentified. The accurate number of deaths is far more than that. Maybe as much as four or five times that many people have died out there and their remains have never been found because the desert ecology is designed to clean up the desert from remains of animals or humans. There's a terrible human tragedy unfolding out there that is a direct result of the policy of border enforcement by the United States. The Border Patrol calls it prevention through deterrence. They designed this border enforcement strategy to force the migration continuing into the deadliest areas of the border and then then to use the deaths and suffering of the most vulnerable and most desperate people in this hemisphere as a deterrent to other people trying to cross. The COVID-19 pandemic has amplified the problems on the border and affected the ability of humanitarian organizations to provide support. Again, here's Lisette DeMars. It's only gotten worse during the pandemic because people who were waiting for asylum cases, people who are now stuck in line in shelters in Mexico, people who have been in our detention centers here have been sent back to their country of origin and taken COVID with them to spread in their communities. And so we have seen a change in sort of the desperation of travelers. Sassabee Border is a great example. Earlier this year, they, for some reason, changed the rules. They said their capacity was limited and they could only accept one asylum seeker a day. That's just unacceptable to me. Humanitarian groups also face pressure from Border Patrol agents. Over the years, their relationship has changed often, from collaboration and mutual support to legal charges against volunteers. During the Flood the Desert trip last Saturday, Demars and other volunteers were pulled over and searched for the first time in the three years that she has been volunteering. 
they used a term we find incredibly offensive, so I won't repeat it here, but they thought we had smuggled people in our cars, so they insisted on asking us to open our cars and show them what was inside. We showed them that we had nothing but garbage inside. It is uh, an unsettling feeling to have your own government treat you like that, treat everyone like that, you know. The Mars and her companions ended the trip with a visit to the crosses on Highway 286, planted by local artist Alvaro Enciso, to mark the place where human remains have been found. There's two crosses on one side of the road and one cross on the other. The cross on the east side of the road is a place of solace. It's in the shade, and it is often just absolutely covered in notes and rosaries and photos and memories. Love notes. The crosses on the west side of the road are really visible, and they are often subjected to vandalism and desecration. Our group stopped to repair one of the crosses, and I think so many people in the uh, caravan were so affected by the idea that these three travelers made it all the way to the road and then perished. And the idea that they were literally five feet from the road before they died, two of them together, just really struck people. It was a sad place to end the trip, but also a hopeful place to end the trip because all of us are a part of ensuring that that doesn't happen again. I can't stomach knowing that people are dying five feet from the road a few miles from where I lived. That's not the kind of country I believe we are. We can do better, and it's not hard. You know, it means putting putting water where it's needed, and showing up to be a presence of peace in the desert. For Vizona Spotlight, I am Alisa Ivanitska. Last week, the Center for Biological Diversity was able to announce that U.S. Fish and Wildlife have put critical habitat protection in place for the Sonoida mud turtle. Listed as an endangered species in 2017, this aquatic turtle's only U.S. population is found in Organ Pipe National Monument. They live in a small riparian area, about 100 yards from the U.S.-Mexico border, within the confines of Pima County. To explain the political situation around the mud turtle's chances for survival, I talked with Randy Seraglio, Southwestern Conservation Advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity. Yeah, the, the population at Quito Paquito uh, is the only one that we have in the U.S., and uh, there might be a total of 150 turtles uh, at the most, um, and they are highly aquatic. Uh, without that surface water there, they cannot survive, and they also need the thick riparian vegetation and around the edges in order to make burrows and lay their eggs. And of course, the whole thing is a, is a living system. Um, you know, it, it works hand in hand. The critical habitat designation for the turtle encompasses about 12 acres, but only about an acre of that is the actual pond. Uh, but the rest of it is very important for the turtle survival as well. So a press release came out written by you from the Center for Biological Diversity about a week ago, and it said that the critical habitat had been finalized for the endangered Arizona mud turtle, the Sonoida turtle. Now that sounds great, and that sounds like a reason to celebrate, but there's more to the story. Um, What is the biggest threat right now that's facing this oasis? Yeah, usually uh, when a species has critical habitat designated, uh, it basically doubles its chances uh, of surviving and recovering. 
uh, and eventually getting off the endangered species list, which is the goal. But in this case, the Endangered Species Act is one of 65 different laws that the presidential administrations have waived in order to expedite construction of the border wall. Um, and the Trump administration is basically moving forward with a border blitzkrieg at this point, uh, building new wall in various places. And Oregon Pipe National Monument is one of those places. The critical habitat designation will not protect the turtle from the border wall. And, you know, you might think, okay, well, it's just a wall across the landscape, right? How does that affect the pond? But Customs and Border Patrol are pumping huge amounts of groundwater out of the aquifer that feeds Keto Bikito Springs and keeps that pond intact. They use it to mix concrete and to spray on the roads to control dust. That huge amount of groundwater pumping is a major threat to the survival of, of the Sonoida mud turtle. And, of course, the irony is if there weren't trucks and construction equipment being brought into that area, there wouldn't be dust coming up off the road. In our arid landscapes, uh, this groundwater was laid down thousands of years ago. I mean, that, that aquifer is fossil water. Uh, it's been there a long time, and it recharges very slowly, and it simply cannot withstand the huge volumes of water that they're removing from that aquifer. You know, this is taking place in a context of ongoing drought, multi-decadal drought, and other groundwater pumping that has affected the flow. The Sonoida mud turtle exists in only five known populations uh, in the wild, and all five of those are now isolated from each other uh, because uh, the Rio Sonoita on the Mexican side of the border has dried up due to groundwater pumping and diversions and things like that, which is why it's critically important to protect the groundwater that supports Keto Paquito. Without it, uh, this population will wink out. I spoke with Randy Seraglio, Southwestern Conservation Advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity. And now... The first episode of Rogue Radio. Our play is The Mark on the Wall, adapted by Cynthia Meyer from the 1917 short story by Virginia Woolf. In the century since it was written, Precious little has changed about the human mind when confronted with too much solitude and too much time spent pondering one's limited surroundings. Join us around the fireplace now in a comfortable manor home as the play begins. Perhaps it was the middle of January in the present year that I first looked up and saw the mark on the wall. In order to fix a date, it is necessary to remember what one saw. So now I think of the fire, the steady film of yellow light upon the page of my book. The three chrysanthemums in the round glass bowl on the mantelpiece. Yes, it must have been the winter time. And we had just finished our tea when I looked up and saw the mark on the wall for the first time. The mark was a small round mark. 
black upon the white wall, about six or seven inches above the mantelpiece. How readily our thoughts swarm upon a new object, lifting it a little way as ants carry a blade of straw so feverishly, and then leave it. If that mark was made by a nail, it can't have been for a picture. It must have been for a miniature. The miniature of a lady with white powdered curls, powder-dusted cheeks, and lips like red carnations. A fraud, of course, for the people who had this house before us would have chosen pictures in that way. An old picture for an old room. That is the sort of people they were. Very interesting people. And I think of them so often in such queer places. Because one will never see them again, never know what happened next. But as for that mark, I'm not sure about it. I don't believe it was made by a nail after all. It is too big, too round for that. I, I might, might get, get up. But if I got up and looked at it, tender one, I shouldn't be able to say for certain. Because once a thing's done, no one ever knows how it happened. Oh, dear me. The mystery of life. The inaccuracy of thought. The, the ignorance, ignorance of humanity. humanity. To show how very little control of our possessions we have... What an accidental affair this living is, after all our civilization. Let me just count over a few of the things lost in one lifetime. The bird cages, The iron hoops. The steel skates. The bagatelle board. The hand organ. All, all gone. gone. And jewels, too. Opals and emeralds. They lie about the roots of turnips. The wonder is that I have any clothes on my back. That I sit surrounded by solid furniture at this moment. Why, if one wants to compare life to anything, one must liken it to being blown through the tube at 50 miles an hour. Shot out at the feet of God, entirely naked. Tumbling head over heels in the meadows like brown paper parcels, pitched down a chute at the post office. Yes, that seems to express the rapidity of life, the perpetual waste and repair, all so casual, all so haphazard. But after life, why, after all, should one not be born there as one is born here? Helpless, speechless, unable to focus one's eyesight at the toes of the giants. There will be nothing but spaces of light and dark, which will, as time goes on, become more definite, become I don't know what. And yet that mark on the wall is not a hole at all. It may even be caused by some round black substance such as a small rose leaf left over from the summer. And I, not being a very vigilant housekeeper... Look at the dust on the mantelpiece, for example. The dust which, so they say, buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation, as one can believe. The, the tree outside, outside the, the window, window taps very gently on the pane. I want to think quietly. Calmly, spaciously, never to be interrupted, never to have to rise from my chair, to slip easily from one thing to another. I want to sink deeper and deeper away from the surface with its hard, separate facts. To steady myself, let me catch hold of the first idea that passes. Shakespeare. Well, he will do as well as another. A man who sat himself solidly in an armchair and looked into the fire. A shower of ideas fell perpetually from some very high heaven down through his mind. He leant his forehead on his hand, and people looking in through the open door... For this scene is supposed to take place on a summer's evening. Yes. 
Yes. In certain lights, that mark on the wall seems actually to project from the wall. Nor is it entirely circular. I cannot be sure, but it seems to cast a perceptible shadow, suggesting that if I ran my finger down that strip of the wall, it would, at a certain point, mount and descend a small tumulus. A smooth tumulus. Like those barrows on the South Downs, which are, as they say, either tombs or camps. Of the two, I'd prefer them to be tombs, desiring melancholy like most English people. There must be some book about it. Some antiquary must have dug up those bones and given them a name. What sort of a man is an antiquary, I wonder? Retired colonels, for the most part, I dare say. Leading parties to the top here, examining clods of earth and stone. And the comparison of arrowheads necessitates cross-country journeys, an agreeable necessity both to them and to their wives, who wish to make plum jam. <laughs> He does finally write a pamphlet, which he is about to read at the quarterly meeting of the local society, when a stroke lays him low. Oh. His last conscious thoughts are not of wife or child, but of that arrowhead there, which is now in the case at the local museum, together with a foot of a Chinese murderess, a handful of Elizabethan nails, a piece of Roman pottery, and the wine glass that Nelson drank out of. Proving I really don't know what. No, no. Nothing has proved. Nothing is known. And if I were to get up at this very moment and ascertain that the mark on the wall is really... What, what shall we, we say? The head of a gigantic old nail. Driven in 200 years ago. Which has now, owing to the patient attrition of many generations of housemaids... Revealed its head above the coat of paint. And is taking its first view of modern life in the sight of a white-walled fire-lit room. What, what should I, I gain? gain? Knowledge? Matter for further speculation? I can think sitting still as well as standing up. And what is knowledge? What are our learned men save the descendants of witches and hermits who crouched in caves and in woods, brewing herbs and writing down the language of the stars? And the less we honor them as our superstitions dwindle and our respect for beauty and health of mind increases... Yes, one could imagine a very pleasant world. A quiet, spacious world with the flowers so red and blue in the open fields. A world without professors or specialists or housekeepers. A world which one could slice with one's thought as a fish slices the water with his fin grazing the stems of the water lilies hanging suspended over nests of white sea eggs. How peaceful it is down here, rooted in the center of the world, and gazing up through the gray waters with their sudden gleams of light. I, I must jump, jump up and see for myself what that mark on the wall really is. A nail? A rose leaf? A crack in the wood? Here is nature once more at her old game of self-preservation. This train of thought, she perceives, is threatening mere waste of energy, even some collision with reality. For who will ever be able to lift a finger against, say, Whitaker's table of precedency? 
The Archbishop of Canterbury is followed by the Lord High Chancellor. The Lord High Chancellor is followed by the Archbishop of York. Everybody follows somebody, such as the philosophy of Whitaker, and the great thing is to know who follows whom. Whitaker knows, and let that, so nature counsels, comfort you instead of enraging you. And if you can't be comforted... If you must shatter this hour of peace, think, think of, of the, the mark on the wall. Indeed, now that I have fixed my eyes upon it, I feel that I have grasped a plank in the sea. I feel a satisfying sense of reality. Here is something definite, something real. Thus, waking from a midnight dream of horror, one hastily turns on the light and lies, worshipping the chest of drawers, worshipping solidity. Worshipping reality. Worshipping the impersonal world which is a proof of some existence other than ours. That is what one wants to be sure of. Wood is a pleasant thing to think about. It comes from a tree. And trees grow. We don't know how they grow. For years and years they grow. Without paying any attention to us. In meadows, in forests, and by the side of rivers. All things one likes to think about. I like to think of the tree itself. On winter's nights, standing in the empty field with all its leaves close furled, a naked mast upon an earth that goes tumbling, tumbling all night long. A song of birds must sound very loud and strange in June. And how cold the feet of insects must feel upon it as they make laborious progresses up the creases of the bark. It is full of peaceful thoughts. Happy thoughts, this tree. I should like to take each one separately. But something is getting in the way. Where was I? What has it all been about? A tree? A river? Whitaker? The downs? I can't, can't remember, remember a thing. thing. Everything's moving. Falling. Slipping. Vanishing. There is a vast upheaval of matter. Someone is standing over me and saying... I'm going out to buy a newspaper. Yes? Though yes. no, it's no good buying newspapers. Nothing ever happens. All the same, I don't see why we should have a snail on the wall. Ah, the mark on the wall. It was a snail. The Mark on the Wall was adapted from the 1917 short story by Virginia Woolf. It starred Joseph McGrath and Ryan Parker Knox as two sides of one man's internal dialogue, and Cynthia Meyer of the Rogue Theater. Original music by Russell Ronnebaum. This Rogue Radio presentation was supported in part by the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona and Marianne Leedy. Join us here on Arizona Spotlight for more radio drama coming soon. And thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.